She and Biden and APEC, the good, bad, and the ugly, plus uh, bureaucratic barriers and incentives to smart uh, U.S.-China competition policy. To discuss, I have here with me longtime listener, first-time caller, Matt Turpin, who is a former uh, China NSC director, currently a fellow at Hoover, and for the past few years um, has been um, punching in at Palantir. Matt, welcome to China Talk. Jordan, thanks so much. I'm so happy to be here. What's the way to have an optimistic spin on this pick? Um, I mean, you know, certainly we should start off by saying that, you know, it is good for the two leaders uh, to meet and and to trade views and to be able to have these kinds of interactions. Um, you know, it's a shame that it that it's taken a year and we're essentially back at the exact same spot. I mean, I mean, the reality is is that that this meeting is not that much different. For, than what had happened, you know, one year and a day before in Bali at the G20 summit. Um, so that's so that's positive. I mean, they need to have those kinds of meetings, and I, I you know, I have I have no objections to the idea that 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 leaders should meet and talk. Um, incredibly important. Um, I think you know another positive aspect is that, um, you know, it, it appears that we did get some agreement um, on on. On restricting the flow of precursors of of fentanyls, you know, out of China to Mexico, you know, as as that scourge uh, is killing tens of thousands of Americans. Um, I mean, it's it's an absolute shame that Beijing uses that as uh, leverage over us um, and refuses to take sort of basic and and sort of fundamentally fundamental actions on stopping drug flows, but. Um, it's good that, that that happened. It appears that that Senator Schumer's efforts and others uh, were successful in making that in making that clear. Um, so I, I think that some of those things are are good. Um, uh, where do you want to go next? Well, let's let's stay on the sort of meta point. Like, why is it yeah. important for leaders to talk to each other? Well, um, I mean, I think you know certainly um, we should we should be clear that that. Um, the U.S. and China obviously have a relationship, um, and we are important powers in the world. Um, and it's important for the two leaders to to trade ideas. Now, I think you know one of my one of my criticisms would be is that we have over-indexed on Sino-American relations, um, and we are not placing sort of our relationship with China within the broader context. That we actually have broader interests, not only in the region but in other parts of the world, and and unfortunately, I I got the impression that sort of last week's summit came across as there's essentially this sort of G two relationship that's in the offing, which I think is what Beijing would love to portray it as, that that fundamentally the United States and China have to come to an agreement to sort of divide up the world, and of course that's not the U.S. perspective, right? That there are Plenty of other countries that have interests here, um, and really, it do, it is not it is not China's place to sort of have a sphere of influence in which it dictates the rules uh, for its neighborhood. That that other powers have have equal equal say. I, I would have preferred to have seen that we provided just as much uh, pageantry to Prime Minister Kishida and President Moon from from South Korea to essentially do an update on the trilateral Camp David summit. To essentially demonstrate to Xi Jinping that 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 you're not the only show in town, but unfortunately, it kind of came across that way. I want to make the 
So Lawrence Friedman, uh, the sort of military historian, strategist, um, uh, wrote a 50 year kind of like review piece of SALT, um, the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, sort of like ongoing discussions that the U.S. and the Soviet Union had for like two decades. And his takeaway was basically this was like in a sort of like military balance of power sense kind of useless. Um, that like very little ended up coming out of it. You were comparing apples to oranges, like the agreements that they ended up making, like did not make World War III um, from a sort of like balance of military power sense any less, uh, any more or less likely. But just the act of like having a thing where people could talk about stuff um, was a sort of, you know, atmospherically useful exercise for both sides, which, you know, helped to get folks comfortable with each other and ultimately, you know, yeah. maybe slightly usher in the groundwork for Gorbachev to take the decisions that he did. You know, I think the generous reading of she and Biden put uh, of Biden pushing for this was was that right. It's like, look, yep. even if we're just talking for talking's sake and like we're not going to come out with really exciting deliverables, um, you know, Talking's better than 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 not talking. Like how much how much credence do you yeah. give to to that line of argument, right? Matt? Well, I mean, I think it's it's similar to you know the old saying by by Eisenhower, right? That that plans are useless, but planning is everything, right? The process of going through it, um, the creation of 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 you know how do you think through um, interactions with one another and how do you routinize that? Um, but what do you actually put on paper may not actually be all that useful, but but the process of going through that. May be quite useful um, because I think fundamentally, um, you know, our 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 challenges is that uh, you know breakthroughs that 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 we may desire may not be possible with the current set of leadership, but we could create the conditions where those breakthroughs at some point in time in the future under different conditions might might manifest themselves, right? Um, yeah. And so, so that's important to continue to go through. But I think that it's 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 critical for us to be very realist in our approach on how these are used. I think it's pretty clear that Beijing views the the use of meetings, of dialogue, of communication as leverage in the overall relationship, right? And that they are more than willing to hold meetings hostage to achieve other goals. And, and given that that's the dynamic, I think we need to be a little bit more hard-nosed about how we approach these. You know, my, my, my personal opinion was that, that uh, and I voiced this before the meeting, that when Xi Jinping started to give and his assistant started to give sort of inklings that Xi Jinping might not come to San Francisco, a response should have been, that's too bad. I guess we'll just have to go on without you. Yeah. And let Beijing have to think through whether or not it wants to be excluded from something. And and I think that's the challenge that we're sort of in is that as we pursue um, meetings for meeting's sake, we lose out on a lot of other things. And I think I think we have to be a little bit, you know, so I'm not against diplomacy. I'm against sort of poor diplomacy. The other argument I find most compelling in favor of the Biden administration pushing for these sorts of dialogues is um, actually like this is a sop to the allies. There's been some um, reporting around uh, G7 leaders getting like freaked out (laughs) uh, 
last fall in the wake of the Pelosi visit and the missile over Taiwan and and the sort of the 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 operating instructions that Biden got were like, look, you got to talk to this guy because we want to, you know, like we're going to have a harder time standing with you, America, unless you are sort of like very clearly perceived as as the one as the side making the outreach and trying to to calm things down. Um, how much sort of credence and weight do you do you put into that, Matt? I'm, I'm certain that that is what that is the message they received. Um, I, I I would have I would have pushed back on them um, and had them think through what what those threats actually meant. Um, so um, I, I I I think I, I don't think we should be. Uh, you know, adjusting our our efforts along the lines in which um, certain allies that have done very little to sort of protect themselves uh, and take these these issues very seriously and and think it through. I think we should be much more skeptical of their approach on this and and essentially say, you know, fundamentally, we you know, we kind of know what we're doing and you know you need to pay attention a little bit more. I think fundamentally one of the things that that we probably need to to sort of think through is is we need to sort of um, designate really just sort of one, one person, right? And and that's probably the Secretary of State. Um, part of the challenge is, is that as as multiple cabinet secretaries sort of rush out to engage with China, it it, it creates divisions. And I think that the, that we would have been much better off had had the White House and and Secretary Blinken essentially taken the full lead here. Um, and and if that meant that we came to an agreement that Xi Jinping would come to San Francisco, great, um, and have that talk. Um, but but I think some of the other things became a little bit uh, uh, serious distractions. And I think we need to be much more sort of blunt with 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 other countries that that while we understand that that they should be applying that same pressure on Beijing as they are on us. And I doubt very much that that those kinds of pressures are being brought on Beijing. So let's turn to the other headline coming out of the um, uh, the Xi Biden summit, which was the resumption of military dialogues. I feel like this has been something, you know, it's been like an on and off switch for over a decade now. I mean, probably even longer. Um, uh, there was a great clip from uh, Michelle Flournoy, who was on the podcast a few um, months ago that I'm just going to play now. This larger question of risk reduction measures and sort of crisis communications, it really is something we've we have tried even when there was a lot of dialogue, you know, back in the Obama administration where we had this regular tempo of strategic and economic dialogues. And, you know, I used to meet with my PLA counterpart twice a year and so forth. We tried to push the issue then because what the, you know, things like the hotline, things like uh incidents at sea agreement. These were mechanisms we put in place in the Cold War with the Soviets with the understanding that if we have a crisis that's not deliberate or not, you know, intended by one, at least one side, you know, if it's truly an accident or a miscalculation, we need to have mechanisms for de-escalation and an understanding of how we'll communicate protocols to de-escalate and so forth. The Chinese have never been willing to talk about that, even in better times in the relationship. The two things they've said, you know, in my hearing have been, number one, 
you seem to really, really want this. So if you really, really want this, you we will give it to you only if you give it something to us that we really, really want, like stop bothering us about Taiwan or stop talking about human rights. And of course, that's not going to happen. The other thing is I've heard um, uh, Chinese interlocutors say, look, if we put risk reduction measures in place, that will create an environment where you're incentivized, you, the United States, are incentivized to, to adopt riskier behaviors because we have these protocols. So we don't want to do that. And so they they just see it through a totally different lens. And so consequently, you know, when the, the spy balloon incident happened, you know, the U.S. was calling on the supposed hotline for days before the phone, anybody answered the phone. So, Matt, you had this... Uh... <laughs> In this incredibly diligent Substack, you write, uh, which uh, is like very terribly named ChinaArticles.Substack.com. Um, yeah. You talked about the accidental war fallacy. Um, what are the sort of, um, you know, assumptions uh, that folks have that mill-mill dialogue is important? And why do you think they're a little off? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we've we've had sort of a, a, met a messy thesis about what the mill-to-mill -mill dialogues are for. Um, I think, you know, a decade ago, uh, when relations between the U.S. and the PRC were sort of, you know, much more, much less hostile, um, the thesis there was is that we could build sort of a, a, a professional relationship between our military leaders and their military leaders by sort of going back and forth, and we could in sort of inspire professionalism. As that has sort of fallen away, we've we've increasingly viewed it as a way uh, to manage crisis, um, and 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 oftentimes I hear um, the rationale for this as being, you know, that we must avoid an accidental war, um, and 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 to be clear, I, I'm not saying that accidents don't happen. Accidents do happen, but wars aren't accidental. Um, wars are intentional, right? You make decisions about starting and, ex and executing a war, um, but but certainly accidents can happen. And if it's a, if it is a true accident, it actually doesn't result in a war um, because both sides do have its own interest not to pursue those things. Um, and so I think it's I think it's we are we are thinking about military to military relations in a wrong way. Fundamentally, as long as we have yeah, I think for both the United States and for the PRC, relations with each country are managed out of the White House and Zhongnanghai, right? Those are the places where where relations between the two countries are managed. And pretending that we can sort of push the relationship and the management of this relationship down to lower levels or to other places, to the Pentagon, to Indo-Pacific Command, right, to a, to a Chinese theater command, and create sort of lower level relationships that would then somehow what regulate what what the higher level leaders want it, it just isn't it doesn't seem very realistic to me and we should understand that that our military headquarters should be concentrating on interacting with our allies um, and making their own plans and that and that high level relations are really done at the at the state to state level and that that's the appropriate way to approach this when you have a really tense relationship um, and yeah. so I think, you know, we, we've become quite um, confused on why it is we're pursuing these things. And it's just not all that, not all that necessary. 
Yeah. I mean, I think the sort of like, like, let's, let's make sure accidents don't happen thing is like, it makes sense if you're like two shipping companies and you're like, have, and like, no one has any interest in stirring shit up. Yeah. Um, but that's clearly it's, it suggests not... that war is it suggests that war is some natural phenomena that just happens out of like like it just yeah. arises like a storm as yeah. opposed like, to it's a human endeavor you make decisions to pursue it um it, and we it, may not desire it but if the other side does desire it then there will be one right i mean that's that's i think the the problem that we find yeah. ourselves in and talking about it as accidental or even less even like not going all the way to war, like talking about the sort of like deconflicting accident thing. I think the most obvious thing that people are thinking about is like a plane crashing into another plane or like yep. a boat crashing into another boat. And there are there are, you know, like ships don't crash into each other unless like someone is trying to uh, send a message or, or play. Well, they're playing chicken, right? I mean, yeah. and, so they and, understand and so that by creating that threat creating the risk of those things to happen, they're putting pressure on us to not be there, right? I mean, of course, yeah. when you when you talk to talk to Beijing, you know, their answer is, you know, if you weren't operating here, these accidents wouldn't actually happen because you wouldn't be here. Yeah. And of course, we want to operate there because fundamentally, if we are, are not there, and we've already seen what Beijing will do to its neighbors, they will use aggression and coercion and threats of military force in order to get them to capitulate to what Beijing demands. We're watching this unfold against the Philippines, right, as we speak, right? So that's yeah. that's the that's the challenge. I mean, it just happened to the Australians. It, it's happened to the Canadians lately. Uh, it continues to happen to the Taiwanese and the Japanese, you know, on a nearly continuous basis. So that that like that's the that's the challenge, right? I mean, yeah, it is a dangerous Fun situation. Fundamentally, like there was a policy decision at a very, you know, senior level in China that this sort of behavior was OK. And there is like yes. a risk profile, which the Chinese government and the PLA I'm sure understands that, you know, there's like X percent chance every year yep. that a Chinese plane is going to bump into an American or Taiwanese plane or that a Chinese yep. boat is going to bump into an American or, or, or Chinese boat. And, you know, people could die from that. And yes. I don't I don't understand how a you know a dial like it's clear that like you know no one's happy about this from the u.s side and if the chinese wanted to sort of change their you know like operating instructions such that there you go from a you know one percent chance of this sort of thing happening to a zero percent chance of this sort of thing happening like you don't need a dialogue to right. make that happen so Okay, so setting the, that sort of thing aside, I think the other analogy that people think about is, you know, um, a Cuban Missile Crisis, right? Um, that there was some sort of like misunderstanding, like it's always phrased as like a like a misunderstanding of intentions. And um, you know, there's one thing I think which is sort of different about the Cuban Missile Crisis than today was like it was actually not clear how you would get in touch with the other side, right? Because like, you know, there weren't there there was not like a ton of digital internet, like, connection. Yeah, the there the was phones no internet. didn't necessarily connect. Yeah. Yeah. And so you had That's all this. That's not the like, problem we have today. In nineteen sixty two, you had all this like weird stuff of like, you know, you had like four different interlocutors and like yep. three letters and like two different ambassadors all sort of running around. Like if the US and China if there is a crisis 
And it's sort of unintentional. Um, and one side wants to figure out a way to move forward. Like, like, you we, know, we know even, what their email even, address is. Yeah. I mean, this was all, this was the reporting right around the balloon. It's like yeah. the Pentagon was like calling all these numbers. Like they know what the numbers are to call. Like the other right. side just decided not to pick up. So, right. And, and we do have communication. I mean, uh, you know, as far as I know, uh, whenever the state department has asked for the Chinese embassy to come in and receive a demarche. I've, I am not aware of the Chinese embassy ever refusing to receive a demarche or an official communication from the U S government. And I don't think we've ever done that either. So we have these things called embassies. Their job is to pass communications back and forth. That's what they're for. So we have this already. It exists. It does work. Um, yeah. We may I not mean, be look, happy with the answer. They planned we get. a whole. They they planned a whole sort of international trip. Like that was a lot of calls. Right. That was a lot of you know logistics, right? Like, yep. like there's yeah. There's... So we we may not be happy that that we don't get the response we want, but that doesn't mean there's not communication, right? So so it 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 could be that they choose not to respond or to even pick up the phone. Yeah, and I think you know so. So I think you're absolutely right about that 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 comparison to to the 1962 and the Cuban Missile Crisis, but I would look you know go back a year to 1961 and the crisis around Berlin, in which the U.S. military and the Soviet military were in contact in East Berlin. We ran a we ran a a a a a, a, a four part sort of agreement of militaries coming together to be able to talk with one another. So it isn't as if we didn't have communications. And so I think we often confuse the lack of the communications that we want with a lack of communications, right? And there's a variety of different ways to signal. And, you know, so, so it is a clear signal when they don't respond. Um, so we should, we should yeah. keep all those things in mind. and be, I, I think we should be less concerned about that. The, that is not to say that there is no danger. There is absolutely danger and risk. But... But a hotline doesn't fix those things. Yeah, that, I think that's the fundamental thing. Is like at the end of the day, what is going to reduce the chances of conflict? Like I'm pretty sure it's not, um, you know, thirty something that we can set up a in the PLA video and Pentagon. Yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. having having zooms once every two weeks, talking about, yeah. uh, you know, talking how they how other. they don't agree with each other and they have vastly separate understandings of what they want to do. Yeah. Now, you know, you can also maybe make the case, um, which I think is probably the the most credible one, is like you take the Lawrence Friedman argument. It's like, look, mm -hmm. it's probably better that these people know each other than don't. Mm -hmm. um, and insofar as this sort of thing helps to, um, you know, create those personal relationships, um, I think that I don't think that can hurt. But, but it, the it needs to be at the like, appropriate level. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to come back to the accidental war thing in the sort of ally context, yeah. because, you know, I take your point that, like, America should have, like, more hard talk and, like, convince the allies that, you know, uh, Matt Turpin's view of the world is correct. But, like, if you can't, um, I still think there's a way to push for this stuff, um, which doesn't cost you all that much. And, you know, sort of the net gain that you come out on the other side with having, you know, gained the trust of your uh, your allies in the region is going to um, uh, um, is, is going to put you out ahead, even if it's it's, you know, a little unseemly and you take the meeting with the less important guy or whatever. 
Um, uh, I don't think this is, you know, the, the sort of the only downs, the only real downside for me, um, which I think is a, a nice transition into the sort of broader arc of, of, um, uh, of, uh, us China policy over the course of the Biden administration is to what extent you let these types of engagements kind of drive your broader competition policy. And, um, there was a famous Reuters article, uh, which we've talked to, which we've talked about a number of times on the podcast where, um, folks in the state department basically leaked that, um, they were really frustrated that their leadership in the wake of the balloon was slow rolling a lot of the more sort of, um, you know, competitive minded, hawkish, uh, you know, export, realist, uh, export yeah. control, uh, entity listing type stuff, um, yeah. in the hopes of, you know, basically making sure that, uh, this meeting, meetings in, in San Francisco, but yeah. care to reflect on, 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 on that map. Um, I mean, I, I, I generally agree. Um, uh, you know, again, yeah, so it, it is. It is not that I'm saying that, you know, so I'm not saying that, that, that leaders shouldn't meet, right? That the president Biden shouldn't meet with, with Xi Jinping. I think the two of them should meet. Um, and I think it is certainly in, in Beijing's interest for, to see them meet as well. Right. So we have to start from that perspective that we don't need to be sort of this ardent suitor pursuing Beijing. They need this as well. And, and we can negotiate sort of much more hard-nosed in in how to do this with yeah. the full understanding that that we're going to receive a, a variety of pressure, right? Because it's not obviously just U.S. allies pressuring the United States to do these meetings. You know, there's large portions of the U.S. business community that are pressuring the administration to do these meetings. Um, and and I think we need to sort of put in a context that that, that, that pressure... Um, does serve Beijing's interests, and we should think through what does that mean for us. The we the weirdest stuff. I think it was like Chamath or someone. Um, <laughs> uh, after uh, you know, she said, "I promise, like I'm not going to invade Taiwan." They're like, "I heard him. Like, let's take him at his word." Really? Like, that's not. Yeah. Well, I mean, exactly. I mean, obviously, how the Reuters article work. from from last week. Um. You know, I mean, you had a senior U.S. official. You know, essentially, you know, come out anonymously after the after the after the summit, that Xi Jinping was quite clear, right? That while he prefers a peaceful solution, yeah, right, he can't wait forever, um, and and needs the United States to help him convince Taiwan to capitulate. Um, yeah, and to me, that's that seems pretty clear. That just as Secretary Biden said a little over a year ago at a Stanford set of remarks, that. That China has transitioned and shifted from really pursuing deterring Taiwanese independence to a strategy and a policy of compelling reunification, aka annexation. Right, like like that that they have made a shift in how they're approaching this, um, and I think that that we we then have to adjust to that to that to that change because I think I think Secretary Biden is absolutely right. That is the shift that Beijing has made. And they probably made it a couple of years ago, maybe going back as far as the election of President Tsai in 2016. Let's talk a little bit about the sort of like bureaucratic barriers and enablers to competition. So we had uh, Peter Howell recently on the podcast kind of talking, gave gave his view, which in brief all- It was a, it was um, a great episode. Good job, Jordan. 
Thank you. Um, where he, you know, in brief said that there were a few major challenges. So the sort of uh, point one was the sort of relative emphasis that the U.S. government puts on understanding the PLA and its hardware and capabilities and command and control and whatever um, compared to like technology, understanding what's happening in this sort of Chinese technology and, and yeah, missile secret ecosystem. Heads. We know a lot of um, Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I love this that like uh, <laughs> Secretary Gates uh, just said in an interview today, like, oh, we totally have a good grip on the. Chinese economy. Um, uh, Matt, care to uh, proffer your 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 take on on uh, um, you know to what extent sort of the information is is enough and and how uh, lack of understanding could help or harm uh, uh, U.S. policymaking? I mean, I think Peter was absolutely right in pointing that out as one of the as one of the major sort of impediments. Um, I mean, I think we should be we should be we should be pretty clear that. Um, from a from an intelligence perspective, uh, our apparatus around intelligence is directed at collecting those things of sort of national security and military importance, right? That's that's what it's mostly directed at, and mostly goes after. Um, and for our economic departments and agencies, they just they just they they provide much less of a demand signal for the collection of intelligence to to serve their purposes, and and as the competition with with China unfolds in many ways in the commercial, economic, and financial space in ways that it didn't unfold with the Soviet Union because we have interconnected economic system, it's, that, that is going to require us to sort of have a much more uh, tactile feel of what those supply chains and value chains look like, what are the commercial relationships between entities, because that's where the competition is unfolding. And my personal experience is that is that we don't actually have a very good understanding of what that looks like, and that we are continuously sort of, as we conduct actions like the October seventh uh, export controls of last year, we are having to then go through and discover the infrastructure of of all of of those industries uh, and everything else as we kind of go along, and that and that suggests that we're just not well suited or or well prepared. Uh, to to collect on those things, um, and so we need to make I think real investments uh, in building that out, um, and it's going to take a while. And that because that knowledge doesn't naturally reside within government. You know, from the United States' perspective, we have not we don't normally see ourselves as as intervening in these industries in ways in which Beijing does. Right. So Beijing, I think, has a much more tactile understanding. Because they have an ownership structure in which they they own or have partial ownership of large portions of this infrastructure, um, and have continuously intervened in these things, and therefore have an, have a have a relatively better understanding of how they fit and work together. And we're going to have yeah. to we're going to have to work on that. Yeah, and I think it's also just like a, a function of being the the rising power from a sort of economic and technological perspective, like like the U.S. I'm sure like in 1800 knew way more about the UK's, you know, industrial capacity and like milling technology or whatever than the UK cared to learn about the US because like it wasn't important for them yeah. to compete to really understand, you know, what um, uh, American engineers were doing back in the day. And, and the sort of yeah. the, 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 what China and, you know, every other developing country uh, has had to do in order to sort of compete globally is have a very good understanding of their trading partners in a way yeah. in which the sort of you know, takers 
of the uh, or the people at the very highest rung of the sort of techno economic global ladder um, could get away with not really uh, stressing about sort of how all this stuff arrived on their shores. Yeah. Well, and I think it, I mean, so, and maybe to put it in a, you know, in a, in a different framing that if our intention is to make sure that this competition does not actually, uh, you know, uh, erupt into a conflict in the military domain and that we want the competition to actually unfold in the economic, the commercial, the technological domain, that's where we want it to unfold. Well, then we need to get much better at what that looks like and how we do that, right? And my 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 fear is is that uh, is that 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 we haven't completely internalized that from a from a U.S. government perspective. That that what what that means to compete in that area, right? It certainly means that we should do better. We should do self strengthening, but it also means that we should take actions to to undermine and kneecap our competitor, right? Like I have to, you know, compare that, that, you know, it, this is not like running a race. It's like a team sport. And in a team sport, you have to score your own goals and prevent the other side from scoring their goals. Right? So you've got to do both of those things. And my impression is, is that we're not, we're not sort of fully yet committed or we haven't really figured out how we're going to pull all the levers and tools in, in the, in the toolbox of economic statecraft in order to compete in a, yeah. in a holistic way. Yeah. So let's go down to like point number two from Peter Harrell, yep. um, you know, a version of that. And and he was sort of less focused on the sort of, uh, you know, administration's commitment to the strategic direction of of competition, but rather like the sort of processes in place where the USTR needs to sync up with commerce and treasury in order to like pursue something in a holistic manner. Let's do the second one first, Peter. Um you know, what about like the way decisions get made in a, uh, in a, in a U.S. presidential administration work and don't? So, so this is where I, I mean, as I listened to Peter's sort of explanation of this, um, you know, what, what struck out to me is that, um, you know, this, this, this problem with process, this, this idea that, 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 you know, coordination between departments and agencies is not working all that well and they're learning it, um, you know, and that you've got to continuously sort of go back to deputies and get sort of guidance and all that sort of stuff, um, that, that the underlying problem, and, and Peter didn't say this because I think he was being a, a bit diplomatic, is that fundamentally the administration has two China policies and that, and that those two China policies are pulling in different directions. And, and unless that's resolved, then you're going to continue to have, uh, you know, it, it's still going to be, it's going to be extremely difficult to make progress and to operate at the speed in which the competition is unfolding. And I would think my, my one example would be, um, I mean, when, when the October 7th, 2022 export controls came out on restricting, you know, advanced semiconductors and the tools to manufacture them. It was apparent within weeks, if not months, that there were significant loopholes in that, right? Those are the loopholes that they, that they announced and, and sought to close just a few weeks ago. And, and it took them another year to put that together. And, and I don't think that it was, it was a lack of knowledge or process. It was a lack of consensus 
on how to move forward. And to me, that's the that's the challenge that the administration has. And that's that's not a that's not a partisan critique. It's a you know the Trump administration had the same problems, right? That there is a division about what the vision is of what you want to achieve. And until an administration can come to a consensus about what that is, it's very difficult to figure out how you're going to implement coherent policy because every office and and assistant secretary and right uh, is going to is going to continuously be looking up to figure out like what is the direction today and that yeah. and that's not helpful to being able to sort of execute at speed what you what you seek to do yeah and, and peter had a little tell i think in the conversation <laughs> where he was like you know, in the wake of the Ukraine war, like all the cabinet secretaries were completely aligned yep. and we got a whole lot of stuff done. Same, and um, you same, know, same the, with 9-11 and talking about about the Treasury Department taking action against banks and getting them to comply. Right. Yeah. Like the same, the same. So so when there was unity, when there was essentially the political will to bring about consensus, you can move very quickly. Right. And I think so. So the, the observation is not that this is a this is a process problem, right? This is a this is a leadership problem, right? You have to make the decision to do it, and then the process can work, right? So we've we have examples of it working very quickly, and and that's I think our problem. You know, so if we so if we assign so if we sort of like continue with your line of reasoning, I think there's a mm -hmm. few places you could sort of like attribute to being the cause of like less than complete um, sort of unity of purpose. Um, you can start with like the deep state. Um, and then you can go up to sort of like the cabinet secretaries and the appointed folks. Um, and then you go all the way up to the president of sort of like being two minds for um, whatever reason, you know, which very well may be justified. We were talking yep. a whole lot over the first half hour about a it's lot a of natural human reaction. You know, there are a lot of different trade offs involved in, in, in yep. all of these policies. Um, so uh, let's start with the Trump administration and then mo maybe go to the Biden one. Yep. Like, you know, looking at those three buckets um, you know, what do you think the sort of, um, uh, how, how would you break down the, uh, the, the, the cause for, um, the way policy ended up shaking out? So I, I think it's clear that it's number two. Um, and then, and then number one, which I think, you know, is a, I don't think it's particularly useful to, to talk about deep state. I think, I think departments and agencies and the offices underneath them look to their, look to their own leadership. And when they see that that there is sort of division, you know, oftentimes you know they're they're wise enough not to essentially act, right? Like they're going to wait until there is sort of much greater clarity on what it is they're supposed to do, right? And yeah. I, I think that's quite natural. So so I think number two is is sort of where we sort of sit, and and I think it's it's clear that there are that there are that there are two policies, and I I would say you know, you know, the way I would lay it out is. And you've got a you've got a policy on China that was communicated in the February 2022 Indo-Pacific strategy that the White House put out uh, in their October 2022 National Security Strategy and in the and in and in the October 2022 National Defense Strategy. In each of those, they lay out you know China is our pacing challenge. It's it's our principal adversary. It's you know quote um, it's the the only country with both the intent to reshape the international system and increasingly the economic, diplomatic, military, and technological power to do so, right? And that, yeah. and that, and that the administration laid out an objective, right? A, a strategy and an objective to do this, which is 
Your objective is not to change the PRC, uh, but to shape the strategic environment in which it operates, building a balance of influence in the world that is maximally favorable to the United States, its allies and partners, and the interests and values we share, right? That's the objective, right? You know, the idea is like, we're not going to try and change China, but what we're going to try and do is to set up a system that maximally benefits ourselves and our allies. And conversely, is disadvantages Beijing. And then, so you've got that laying out as a policy with a number of sort of announced documents and, you know, things that are put out and rolled out. Um, and then you have in April of 2023, the treasury secretary laying out an alternative policy, one in which the United States is going to seek to build a mutually uh, constructive economic relationship with China, right? That we're going to take national security and we're going to limit and constrain what it impacts so that we can open up areas of mutual economic uh, importance. And that fundamentally, we're going to shape China. We're going to help seek to change China to make it conform to sort of the neoliberal ideals about trade and finance and, and economic activities, right? Those are just different policies and they're both yeah. being executed, right? So you can see, I mean, this, this came out again in Secretary Yellen's op-ed a week before the APEC summit in the Washington Post. And so yeah. these two policies are forcing you know, everyone else to have to work between the two and figure out, okay, so, so this week, which one are we following? And that, that to me is the challenge. Yeah. So um, I'm going to make the case for number three, um, okay. whatever, the, the president's. So, you know, I think it's, it's a tricky thing for a cabinet member or, you know, a civil servant when, you know, we'll take the Trump administration because I think it's the more sort of transparent one where yep. you go from, you know, trying to kill ZTE one day to taking a call from Xi and saying, oh, no, this costs too many American jobs, you know, Chinese jobs. We need to save it yep. to, you know, uh, putting all these tariffs on and then like, you know, trying to do this grand bargain and. Uh, and sort of that that back and yep. forth, I think, for anyone working um, in that environment is very difficult. And, yep. you know, the the sort of the the drift that you pointed out with, with respect to the documents in 2021 and 2022 and the and the language that we've seen um, with the you know Commerce and Treasury Secretary really coming to the fore with a slightly different, you know, line, I don't think is something that can happen unless you have a president who, um, you know, is okay with it. So, um, I don't, yeah. I, I, I see where you're coming from, but yeah. like, this is, this is a confusion, which like, if the, if the, you know, president of the United States wanted to clear up, like they could have. And, yeah. um, it, it, it's, it seems tricky to like, I'm sure all the cabinet secretaries have their sort of like, you know, institutional and personal views about yep. these topics, which like, I'm sure are not all the same, but like, they all work at the pleasure of president. And, yeah. um, it, it seems hard not to, not to, um, yeah. uh, you know, assign, assign the, the ultimate responsibility at that level for a sort of muddled. Yeah. I mean, um, I think you're, you're likely right. I mean, there is, you know, obviously presidents are responsible for how their cabinets operate and what they come up with. I mean, fundamentally, they're ultimately responsible for the policies that they put in place. Um, I, I think the way in which the dynamic plays out is that, is that similar to the Trump administration, it's sort of the last person who spoke is the, is the way it goes, right? And so obviously a, a, a different president could you know, execute and, and insist upon a policy that is more consistent. And then, and then you would get 
consistency and and the message would go down through the system that this is what we're doing now. Um, but it's a it's an interplay here, um, and it, I, I think it's simply you know. So I would observe that we we just we just don't have a a consensus on what the policy is, and that's causing that's causing disruptions in the ability to be able to do the things that Peter Harrell described to you last week. Gotcha. Um, so let's stay on Trump for a bit. We haven't yeah. talked, uh, all that much about 2025, but we're sitting here, uh, Tuesday, November 21st, uh, Nikki Haley's at like 15%. Uh, I think there's, you know, probably a coin flip that come January, 2025, we have another, uh, another Trump administration. Any sort of thoughts, hopes, fears about what, uh, what, uh, a second Trump administration could do for U.S. policy in Asia? It, it's going to be tough for us to gain the kind of consensus that, that the Biden administration has been able to pull together with, with other countries on how to approach this. I think particularly for our European partners. Now, I think there is a, there is a chance that, um, that, that, a, that a Trump administration could, could um, you know, pick up on the kind of relationship that they had with Shinzo Abe uh, in Japan, uh, as well as the, the, the relationship that, that, that President Trump had had with Neander Modi, um, to be able to put together, uh, uh, an approach with our, with our, with our allies and our partners, uh, in the region to continue those things on. I suspect that, 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 that he would be able to establish a relationship with, with President Marcos in the Philippines, uh, as well as President Moon in, in South Korea. Um, and that there would be a way to sort of continue those things underneath the Trump administration. I suspect it will be get more difficult um, with our European allies, um, particularly as questions around Ukraine and everything else come up. Um, and so I'm, uh, you know, it's it it is likely to be difficult. Um, it's not clear to me that it will be an easy sailing. Yeah, the sort of the the. The, the other big, well, it's two big questions. First, like, who the hell is going to work for this guy? Um, you know, your old boss, Matt Pottinger, um, is probably not super <laughs> high on the list after having left after January 6th. Um, and the sort of, I guess, like quality of uh, and like experience level of, of the folks who are going to be, uh, um, you know, helming the, the ship on this is something that concerns me. But the other one, which I think is a question that was never really answered, um, is just how much uh, Trump cares about Taiwan um, and, you know, critical to the whole sort of deterrence philosophy um, uh, is that uh, is basically what Biden has been doing, saying the quiet part yeah. out loud over the course of administration is that, yes, the U.S. would come to uh, Taiwan's defense if there was you know something as dramatic as a blockade or an invasion. Um, care to is it even worth speculating about yeah. about something like this, Matt? Well, I think it's I think it's critical that that any future president not walk back what President Biden has already said out loud. So I think that it's critical that that any future administration continue to 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 maintain that level. It's it's important for us not to be kind of moving back and forth on these things. Um, and now that that President Biden has on on four occasions made it very clear that under the contingency in which. China attacks Taiwan, that the United States would intervene militarily, I think it's important to keep that out there so as not to uh, 
raise uh, uh, ideas within the minds of of Chinese leaders that that now might be a good time to to, to undertake this kind of conflict. I suspect that 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 you know when when pressed, um, any president would not want to see really a, a a regional, if not global, conflict erupt in and around Taiwan. Um, and I think we we need to be very clear that that conflict would be incredibly disruptive to the global economy and would cost thousands, you know, if not far, far more numbers of lives um, uh, and the destruction of, of, of huge economic uh, uh, potential. So I think all of that would, I would, I would caution any new administration to take very seriously that our position is to maintain peace and stability in the Western Pacific, right? That has to be our underlying thing. And the thing that actually does that is, is our position on, de- on deterring that kind of invasion to happen. Because increasingly, as Xi Jinping has made clear, he does want this problem from his perspective solved. And that, that, that solution for him is annexation. And, yeah. and that, and it is, I think it is, it is very clear that that's not what the Taiwanese people want. A slightly different take, Matt. Um, yep. There are not many people on this planet, I think, who read more news about China than me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, your your newsletter is, you know, basically like uh, uh, Bill Bishop levels of diligent, even though I don't think anyone's paying you for this. Um, no. What has... Um, what has reading all that news and sort of trying to, um, you know, write a little column every week and and yep. and process that like done to your brain? Um, first, I'm I'm incredibly impressed with the skill and diligence of of journalists in a variety of different media outlets and think tanks, you know, so researchers and think tanks who are devoted to this topic and continuously sort of go after it and find stories and continuously bring things forward. Um, when I started this effort five or six years ago, um, and I really just did it internal to the U.S. government and provided essentially articles uh, to, and a, that's why it's called China Articles, um, it, it, and I provided those to our ambassadors and other senior government officials, um, it was hard to find 30 articles a week on what was going on. I'm now sitting at, I mean, I hit a hundred and I stop and I still don't, I still don't cover it all. And so, um, and that's every week. And so we've seen bureaus and, 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 and correspondent offices stood up to look at this. And so I'm really impressed with, with the quality of journalism that's coming out on this. It, it is really, it is really quite well informed and provides us, I think, a lot of insight in ways that, that I think we were, if if things had gotten more, um, uh, you know, gotten much more problematic between the two countries five or ten years ago, the American people would not be in as good a position to essentially find information and find out what's going on. They now are in a very good position. Now, obviously, folks have to choose to go, go find those things, but it's out there, and people are doing great work on it. Um, and so I, you know, my hats off to those folks. Um, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give any shout outs to any particular folks, but they knew who they are. They're doing an, a, a stupendous job. Uh, and, and lastly, Matt, you're included like, though. I mean, you're, you're, you're in this. 
Jordan. Thank you. Uh, lastly, like you're a weird book reader. Um, you want to, you want to close with three, um, uh, three yeah. recommendations of, of some. So I, I just finished on recommendation from a, from an old army buddy, Mick Ryan's white star war, uh, that is essentially, I would term it as essentially the red storm rising of a Taiwan conflict. Um, looking at a, a conflict in like 2028, uh, I have to be honest, I think it's a hundred times better than Stavridis's, April Stavridis's 2034. Um, it's so much better than that. So I, I would recommend that one. Um, I just picked up uh, John Gray's The New Leviathans, um, sort of like you're looking at what, like, what, what are we looking at after liberalism? Um, I don't know if I fully agree with with all of his thoughts of sort of his, the political philosophy, uh, but it's an interesting it's an interesting read. Uh, and then as I look around uh, at my, I'm slowly ma- making my way through Handoff, right? The the book that Steve Hadley and and um, uh, uh, and and others wrote uh, about the tr- the transition between the Obama administration or the the George W. Bush administration and the Obama administration back in 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 2008 2009. Um, an interesting read. Yeah, it's like a that book's got some very weird vibes because it just feels like from such a different era. Of like it this, really does. I cannot um, believe this was 15 years ago. Yeah, um, and what's most like scary is I rem- I remember the period. I, I was I was I was stationed in Iraq, um, and so I remember the period, but I remember it from a very different perspective. Um, you know, as I'm sitting on a you know, a fob and conducting, you know, patrols around Southern Iraq. And they're just, like, um, one book I want to chat about that we, yeah. um, talked about a little while back that, that there are a few, um, two international studies and academic enterprise, as well as foundations for the American century, which is like a, a history of the Ford foundation. And, you know, yep. one of the things that we, we spoke about was this idea of, um, investment in the like intellectual capital required to understand the Soviet Union that happened from the sort of government as well as as well as foundations over the course of the the late 40s and 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 50s any um uh uh anything you care to add or or, or reflect yeah. on on that reading you and, did Matt and I think you know we've we've discussed this a little bit but but uh you know in order to sort of uh, to prepare ourselves for you know, really the 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 complexities of 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 how this competition will unfold over the coming decades uh we really need to have our philanthropic foundations get back into the business of of funding uh foreign policy national security and other things i mean you know, unfortunately we've got very few left the smith richardson foundation and a couple of others but most of our major philanthropic foundations essentially after the Cold War, decided that history had ended, right? They read Fukuyama and decided that history had ended and they could move on to other things. And unfortunately, our vacation from history is over and we don't yet have the 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 processes to build the intellectual capital to do that. Now, that's that's the pessimistic side. So we go back just a few minutes ago. And so my optimistic side is we've got people that are doing this and it's all happening. Um, it's happening in different ways, and maybe it's going to materialize in different ways. But 
it's not as if we don't have good insights into this stuff and we don't have a, a, a robust republic of letters of people uh, discussing these topics and going back and forth. Uh, so we should maybe be somewhat uh, optimistic, but I'm, I, I still think we need those large philanthropic or, uh, foundations to get back in and to encourage people to spend and devote sort of you know their careers to getting into and really understanding these things um, from a from a you know like a U.S. interest perspective. Yeah. So um, I think this is a good time maybe to talk a little bit about uh, the China project, uh, formerly SubChina. Uh, you know whatever issues you have about uh, the political stances. <laughs> um, of uh, the sort of uh, hosts of, of their yep. flagship, so Seneca, which doesn't exactly align with the Matt Turpin view of uh, humanity. Uh, it's America. We, we all have yeah. our different um, opinions. But, um, uh, you know, the, the... I listen the, to their the, stuff, yeah. Yeah, the, the fact of the matter is that it is extraordinarily difficult to build a newsroom and, um, you know, create and fund uh, a sort of media operation that focuses in the English language on China. And... Uh, uh, Jeremy Goldcorn, um, one of the uh, CEOs of the organization, yep. talked about this of basically, uh, and this is a, a, a thing that I'm very much subject to, is um, no Chinese firm will advertise on your platform. And then pretty much any um, Western firm that has business in China will also not buy advertising on your platform. So you are then left with this very sort of like narrow window of folks who like care about China or are interested in strategic competition but like don't do any business in the second largest economy on the planet, um, yeah. which just makes for a very difficult operating environment. So, um, you know, reach out if you want to sponsor China talk. Uh, and, um, uh, and, well, it suggests that it suggests that, that, that it just requires different business models. Right. I mean, I think David Barboza, um, you know, and, and the wire China, you know, has, has, has adopted a different type of business model. Right. So, it suggests that there is, um, yeah, it requires a really a thinking and a reexamination of how you would do this. I guess, but I just I don't want to be a consultant. Like I've done that for a decade, and like what gets me up in the what gets me up every day is sort of informing this broader community of the yeah. fifty thousand people that now engage with China Talk every week, and you know having to spend half of my time. Um, informing five people who work at a corporation, um, I think has much less sort of like broader public good type impact than yeah. um, being able to support this, do this show, you know, basically without a paywall um, yep. uh, for, um, you know, the broader public policymakers, uh, students, journalists. Yep. Um, and it would, I would much rather um, be able to find a way to do that with film, the, a combination of philanthropic and advertising support than um, yeah. sort of throw up, uh, you know, $50,000 a year retainer type paywalls yeah. just to get access to, you know. You know, I, 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 mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, it would be great if what we had is, uh, you know, really our, our, our major philanthropic foundations sort of step back in and help do this again. Or we have a new generation, right? I mean, we don't have to rely upon the people that, from the end of the 19th century. Um, we, we could have a new generation of philanthropic sure. foundations uh, that do this. And and obviously, I think I think there is plenty of interest, you know, just looking at the way in which newsrooms have set up and 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 have bureaus and, and reporters boarding on it. Clearly, there's interest in this. Um, clearly, there's an audience. Um, and so therefore, we could probably get others to step in. We just, 
It just hasn't materialized yet. Matt got a got a song to take us out on. <laughs> so I, I took my car over to get it uh, uh, inspected in, at the DC inspection station this morning and was listening to someone on the way back because I knew you would ask this question. And I, I have two. I don't know if you do okay. two, but I we'll have do two. two. For and you, we'll theme. do two. There's a theme, right? So, so the first is a bluegrass cover of Pink Floyd's Time, that classic song, right? And it's by Green Sky Bluegrass. And then the other one is Jamiroquai's Virtual Reality from 1996, right? So the theme that I see for these two songs is both have really an uplifting melody, but a melancholy set of lyrics. It's the perfect sort of sweet and sour kind of arrangement for your listeners. Matt Turpin, happy Thanksgiving. Thank you so much for being a part of China. And a happy Thanksgiving to you, Jordan.